This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. 54, 22, 54. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And, and we, when we do our tours, we regularly go there. And, the, and under the, underneath the traditional spot, it's, it's the area. We know it's the right area. Whether it's the exact right house, we don't know. But under one of those houses is uh, an old cistern, and that's what jails were. Jails were old water reservoirs that once it was dry, you drop people down the hole. That's where the Mamertine prison is in Rome. It's a, it's a cistern. And underneath Caiaphas's house was the cistern. And it was recognized very early, early second century as maybe the place where Jesus had been held. So um, there, there are holes in the walls where they think shackles were connected or tied in. And again, you know, I'm not dogmatic about that, but we do know that there's a, there were holding cells <clears throat> uh, underneath the, some of those houses. Peter followed at a distance, but when he kindled a fire, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. John gives us the whole detail that John goes in. He knows the name of the girl, the slave girl who's keeping the door. John has local knowledge. He knows people for some reason. Peter doesn't. So Peter can't get in to the courtyard. So John tells us he goes, he talks to the girl at the gate and and gets Peter in. And so one of the times when they ask Peter about who he is, they they will say, surely you are not another of his disciples. So John is there as an acknowledged disciple of Jesus. And apparently he's not afraid anybody's going to do anything to him. See? So that's just part of the story. So anyway, that, that detail comes from John. So a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Girl, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not. About an hour later, and all of the gospels are consistent about that detail. About an hour later, uh, another asserted, and um, John tells us that this was a relative of the person that Peter had cut. Uh, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him for he's a Galilean. What does that mean? He means he talks funny. There are certain syllables that Peter can't pronounce as a Galilean, and it makes him sound uneducated, um, kind of like a southern accent. Something makes some people, I've been told. <laughs> uh, his speech is distinctive, let me say it that way. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And here's the big, the, the detail that no one else but Luke gives us. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So apparently they're in the courtyard and Jesus is in the courtyard. And that word for look straight at is a very specific word. It's the Greek word emblepo, emblepo. And it's used two times. And it describes the way Jesus looks at Peter. The very first time it's used is in John 1. Jesus looks straight at. We don't really know how to translate it. I translate it gaze. 
He gazes at him. It's to see somebody with your soul. It's, to, it's more than just look at. It's to gaze knowingly. So I like gaze. I wrote a song called The Gaze about this word. So uh, when Jesus first looks at Peter, that when he says, you, you will be Peter, he's, it's in blepo. He's gazing at him. Okay? And this is the second time. Okay? So um, Peter has just denied him for the first time. Peter, uh, Jesus had predicted he would do it. When he does it the third time, he looks over and Jesus is looking at him. Now that, I mean, it doesn't get any more intense than that. But my question is, okay, what is the nature of that gaze? Is he going, <laughs> you know, do you think that would have broken Peter? I don't think so. Because when he looks at Jesus, he breaks down and cries. I think he's looking at him in a forgiving way. You know, I, I love you. Right? Hesed. It's a, he's a, give him a hesed gaze. Right, eyes of compassion, yeah. Yeah, he knows Peter's afraid. He knows what Peter's going through, right? And so, but yeah, so Jesus, he looks, it gives me chill bumps thinking about it. He looks and Jesus is looking right at him. Oh, when Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken before the rooster crows, today you'll owe me three dies, then he went outside and wept bitterly. Okay, two people betray Jesus, Judas and Peter, okay? One of them weeps. And one of them tries to fix it. Who survives? Right? Who survives? The, the person who gives into his grief and just weeps. Right? And that's repentance. Judas doesn't really repent. He tries to fix it. Giving the coins back is not really repentance. He's just trying to fix it. And, uh, and he ends up, you know, uh, dead. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. These are Jewish people. Jesus is mocked by Roman soldiers and he's mocked by Jewish soldiers. And the Jewish soldiers mock him in a uniquely Jewish way. And the Roman soldiers mock him in a uniquely Roman way. Uh, so the Jews mock, uh, the, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him, beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, whack, prophesy, who hit you? Now this comes from uh, a teaching that when the Messiah comes, this is from the Talmud, from uh, Tractate Sanhedrin 93b. And it's based on Isaiah 11, uh, 11.3, uh, which says that um, when the Messiah comes, he won't judge by what he sees. Okay, And the, 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 believing, the belief was, as crazy as it sounds, he, he's going to judge by what he smells. I know. So basically, they're testing to see if he's the Messiah. They blindfold him and say, if you're really the Messiah, you're not going to judge by what you see. Bam, who hit you? But they're mocking him. It's not like they're really testing him, right? But this is a, there's Judaism behind this, uh, this mocking. And they said many other uh, insulting things to him. At daybreak, for the sake of legality, there's a nighttime meeting of the Sanhedrin that John tells us about that Luke doesn't tell us about. Basically, it's really simple. Uh, two trials... Uh, Jewish trial, Roman trial, and each one has three parts. Really easy. Okay, he's, he's taken to Caiaphas' house. They have a midnight meeting. They have a morning meeting to ratify it. That's the Jewish trial. Then he goes to Roman. The Roman one's really easy. Pilate, Herod, Pilate. He goes to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod, hoping to get rid of him. Herod sends him back to, to Pilate. So two trials, three, three, uh, three parts each. <clears throat> 
So at daybreak, the uh, council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests, teachers of the law, that means Sanhedrin, met together, and uh, Jesus was led before them. If you're the Christ, they said, tell us. And I think at this point, Jesus says, there's no point, right? There's no point. Um, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, uh, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Then they all asked, are you then the Son of God? He said, you're right in saying that I am. So that's, all, that's really all they need. Uh, then they said, why, why do we need any more testimony? Uh, we have heard it from his own lips. Now we know from the other accounts that we have had a series of false witnesses who can't agree. Luke didn't tell us about those. Maybe for the sake of the trial. Hmm, never thought of that. Uh, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. We talk a little bit about Pilate, because we know a lot about Pilate, actually. Uh, he was in office between 26 and 36. Uh, he was a Roman military governor. That's, he's, he's a military person. He's usually in Caesarea, uh, not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. That's where his, his uh, base is. He comes to Jerusalem for Passover, because there's going to be trouble, right? There's going to be trouble. Um, at one point we have lots of stories and these are all from Josephus okay? uh, Josephus tells us at one point he stole money from, a temp from the temple treasury he's a good Roman he wants to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem and he doesn't have the money so he steals it from the temple remember they've got access to the temple right? Uh, and because of that there was a riot he caused a riot in, uh, in Jerusalem uh, at one point he loves making Jewish, you know, getting under their skin. At one point, he brought the Roman standards into Jerusalem, which you're not supposed to do because they have images. And what you need to know is each little Roman stand, standard is a god. It's an idol. Because when, when they're on the field, when they're in the field, they burn incense and they, they worship their standards. Okay? So the, in Judaism, I mean, I mean in Christianity... Right, this is a vile thing. Well, he brings those into Jerusalem, and he knows exactly what you know what's going to happen, because they're <coughs> they're usually kept in Caesarea, but again, there's a, there's a there's a riot. Standard, you know, big pole that's got an image of the of the emperor because they worship the emperor. Uh, that's what it is, Roman standards, and they have a kind of a flag on them. But you see them, you know, that's their standards. And when they're in battle. You know, the standard bearer, you, when you're in the midst of the confusion of battle, you kind of know where everything is. You see where the standard is. Okay, follow, follow the standard. And uh, one of the horrible things about that uh, was at Teutoburg Forest when the Germans wiped out all of those uh, uh, two or three legions. Uh, they got their standards, and that was this great humiliation for the Romans. Uh, they had to get them back. Now, later on, after uh, the death and uh, resurrection of Jesus... Um, <coughs> oh, by the way, when, uh, when, when, uh, the, when the riot happened about the Roman standards, um, a bunch of Jews went to Caesarea where he was at that point, and uh, they, they begged him to take the standards away, to take them out of Jerusalem. And um, they're in the, the amphitheater, or the hippodrome there in Caesarea, right by the, by the sea. And there's all these Jews, and uh, Pilate says, leave or I'm going to kill you right now. And they say, oh, fine, fine, kill us. So he calls in the soldiers, and the Jews get on their, neck, on their knees, and they bare their necks to the Roman soldiers. Go ahead, kill us. And Pilate won't do it. So he removes the standards. So that's, 
That's Pilate, kind of a weaselly, weaselly guy. Um, later on, he, is, uh, there were, he, he did some uh, atrocities against the Samaritans because he hated them too. And he was, and Tiberius is the emperor, and he's called back to Rome. And he dis, t- Tiberius dies while he's going back. Pilate disappears. We don't know what happened to him. We think he probably committed suicide. Okay. So that's, that's what we know about Pilate. But uh, here, and this is a sidebar, here's one of the most important persons whose name you probably don't know uh, that is absolutely vital in understanding uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. His name is Elias Sejanus, A-E-L-I-U-S, Elias, S-E-J-A-N-U-S, Sejanus, Elias Sejanus. He's the most important unnamed person in the New Testament. Uh, he was consul, which consul is like co-emperor, um, in 31 AD <coughs> under Tiberius. He had been head of the Praetorian Guard, so he was a military guy too. So Tiberius basically retires to the island of Capri where he has uh, a pornographic palace. That's all I can say. There's pedophilia. There's por- it's, I can't even say. I can't say what, what, what happens there. Uh, but uh, Suetonius, in his life of uh, the deified emperors, he talks about Tiberius and the sort of things that happened there. And I can't even say, you know, what he did. But basically, uh, Tiberius retires to a life of pornographic indulgence. And guess who's running Rome? Sejanus is running Rome. And uh, in October 18th of 31 AD, a plot was uncovered. Sejanus was going to take over and become emperor. He is executed under, uh, by order of Tiberius, and the order goes out that atrocities against the Jews will, Jews will cease. Here's what you need to know. Pilate got his job through Sejanus. Sejanus was Pilate's patron. So now let's put your thinking hats on. I'm Pilate. The guy who got me my job has just been executed because he's going to overthrow the Roman government. I am, on, I am on slippery, you know, slippery ground. I'm on slippery ground. Uh, I hate Jews anyway. And here they brought me this person who they're saying is the king of the Jews. I know he hadn't done anything wrong. He, he's blasphemy. That's your law, right? Pilate says, I, I don't have anything to get, you know, get him out of here. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, but then what happens that, 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 directly leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, a voice from the back of the crowd says, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And there's this abrupt uh, shift. Pilate comes out. He says he's guilty, and they crucify him. And that's all because of Sejanus. So Sejanus is this very, very important uh, person. And he was, by the way, executed. Sejanus was. Okay, so that's Pilate. Complicated, you know, twisted, just like you would expect, right? You'd, that's what you'd expect. Um, okay, so they led him off 23 1. Uh, then the whole assembly led, uh, rose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man uh, subverting our nation. Because they can't say blasphemy, because Pilate couldn't care less about blasphemy, right? They got to get a Roman charge, right? So he's, he's uh, subverting our nature. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. 
That's, the Romans don't like that, right? That's going to get them in trouble. Blasphemy, couldn't care less. Really saying you're the Christ, couldn't care less, but they're going to say that now. And he claims to be Christ, a king. Well, now that's a problem. That's a problem. But you see what they're doing. They're trying to make him look bad in, the, in, in Roman eyes. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest of the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus kind of said, I'm guilty. Yeah, I'm a king. Okay, get him out of here. He does not want to have. Pilate is a Roman gentleman, has before him what we, what we call a day of organized leisure. Roman, Roman uh, 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 high-class Romans, he's an equestrian, or I think he is. Anyway, he's, he's a high-class Roman. He's a powerful Roman. He gets all of his work done before about 8 in the morning. And then he goes to the baths. Then he has a meal. Then he has a rub down. He goes back to the baths. It's called a day of organized leisure. In a slave culture, that's how you live. A day of organized leisure. The slaves do all the work. So he gets all of his work done early in the morning. And Jesus is just another blip on his radar screen. And he wants to get rid of him. He does not want to have anything to do with this guy, okay? His wife has had dreams, have nothing to do with this innocent man, and Romans take great stock in dreams, believe me, right? Okay, so uh, I have nothing to do. I find no basis for a charge. He's innocent, and again, Luke is going to insist on the innocence. We're going to see everybody saying Jesus is innocent. Uh, but they insisted. He stirs up people all over, all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. Pilate goes, Galilee, oh, great. I can send him to Herod, <laughs> right? On hearing this, Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. See, oh, thank goodness I got rid of this guy, who was also in Jerusalem at that time, uh, celebrating Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. We read that in chapter 9, verses 7 and 9. Uh, uh, from what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Why? Because there's just no point. There's just no point. The chief priests and teachers of the law <coughs> were standing there vehemently accusing him. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. So he's just not going to say anything. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Because we know Herod had been killing Galileans. That's kind of one of his favorite things to do. Galileans, all the revolts start in Galilee. So killing Galileans had been one of Herod, uh, sorry, Pilate's Famous, uh, favorite pastimes. So now they're friends. Pilate called together the chief priests, rulers, and people. And guess what he's going to say? Don't even read it. Guess what he's going to say? He's innocent, right? Watch. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge against him. That's the second time he said he's innocent. Neither has Herod. So Herod says he's innocent. For he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing deserving death. That's the third time he said he's innocent. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him, which is completely wrong. But he's trying to appease the crowd. Why? Because he's Pilate. I'm going to punish him just to appease you 
It's an unheard of in Roman law to punish someone that you pronounce innocent. But he's just doing it to keep a lid on things. That's what he's trying to do. Preserve the peace of Rome. I'll punish him and release him. With one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Uh, It's at this point in Matthew 27 that Pilate's wife sends word to Pilate, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've been having dreams about him. You see, you just, it's, it's, it's a drama. I mean, you'd never write it like this if you were writing a movie. It's so dramatic. Uh, wanting to release Jesus, there's a neck, that's the fourth time he's asserting his innocence. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Why? What crime has he committed? I have found nothing in him. I have found no grounds uh, for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. And when he says punished, he means flogged, which is gruesome enough as it is. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. Now that's John. If if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. That's John right there. Luke doesn't tell us that. Uh, So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He's basically handing Jesus over to mob violence. I mean, the Roman soldiers are going to do the work, but he's he's giving in to mob violence. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, the son of the father. Barabbas means in Aramaic. Uh, The one they'd asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. So there's the focus from the Roman trial, anyway, on the innocence of Jesus. Now, here's the crucifixion. Um, I don't see the flogging. Did, does Luke leave out the flogging? Um, yeah. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about Roman flogging. Okay, let me ask you a question. How many times did they beat Jesus? How many stripes? Wrong. That's Jewish synagogue discipline. And, but all the movies, you know, I mean, that's the 90% position. You see a movie on Life of Jesus, 38, whick, 39. Whick. That's synagogue Jewish discipline. That's Paul. Paul says, I received 40 lashes, save one. It's synagogue discipline administered with rods. And it's kind of a thing you're proud of. Okay? Paul boasts about it. The Jews didn't, flog, uh, didn't, didn't hit Jesus with rods. The Romans flogged Jesus. And according to the Julian Code, there is only one stipulation that's given to Roman flogging. That is, a man will be flogged until the flesh hangs from his back. That's the only rule they've got. And it's not with, it's not with rods, like Jewish discipline. It's with a flagrum. And that's strips of linen with glass and bones to bruise and bone embedded in them. So they, can, they, they, they hit it, it digs into the flesh and they rip it down. That's flogging. Most or a lot of people didn't survive the flogging. Uh, Cicero tells us that he saw a man disemboweled from flogging because the, it would come around you and rip. I mean, the, the crucifixion is, I mean, I'll try not to be too graphic, but it's the most horrific thing you can imagine. Uh, Augustus had one of his wives flogged and she lost an eye from it. So this is not the Jesus movie, you know, 38, 39. Uh, This, you know, ought to have killed him. Blood loss, you know, shock, all all those sort of things. And Luke leaves it out. 
For some reason, I've never noticed that. So as they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene. There is a Cyrenian synagogue in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. So he's come up there uh, from Cyrene, who is on his way in from the country, put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. This is a Roman law, the Roman, Roman law of impressment. This is also the Julian Code. The Roman law says a Roman soldier can make you carry a burden one mile. You're walking along a Roman road and there's a soldier, he's got his backpack. Hey, you, here, boom. You've got to carry it for a mile. He can't make you carry it more than a mile. What does Jesus say? Carry it two miles. If someone makes you carry a burden, he's specifically referring to Roman oppression and this law. And so Simon, he, he can't say no. If a soldier says, you carry this, you carry it, okay, according to Roman law. So that's the, the Julian Code. Uh, so Simon, uh, he has to carry the cross beam. The, the upright is already in the hole. You carry the beam, and, and it's suspended from the upright. And you reuse this because we've got lots of people to crucify, right? Now, that's the other thing, another sidebar. Um, there is no relic mentality, right? When Jesus has the Last Supper, no one's saying, ooh, this is the cup that he actually drank from. Let's, let's save this. No, they put it with the rest of the, they washed it and put it with the rest of the cups. There's no relic mentality. The crucifixion, similarly, I mean, he's, when, after he's crucified, no one's saying, ooh, this is the beam. Let's, this is the beam he was actually crucified on. Let's, you know, no, they hung the next guy, right? That's, that's just, there's no relic mentality. So that's the Middle Ages. <clears throat> so Simon's carrying the cross. A uh, large number of people are following him because they're taking the most public route they can take, which is part of the punishment, um, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children. For the time, uh, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then you will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. If men do these things when the tree is green, what will, they hap- what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were, led out, were also led out uh, with him to be executed. That's Isaiah 53, 12. That's Isaiah 53, 12. Um, when they came to the place called the skull, okay, that's the, 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 uh, the Greek word for skull is calvaria. That's calvary. The, the Latin, yeah, no, no, wait, wait, let me get this right. Uh, no, the Latin word for skull is calvaria. The Greek or Hebrew word for skull is gol- golgoloth. So that's Golgotha and Calvary. That's where you get those. Um, so it's a place that looks like a skull. And here's, this is all you get. There they crucified him. No nails in the hands, no, then they lifted him up, none of that. All, all of the Gospels just say, and there they crucified him. Because the first readers of this knew exactly what that meant. They don't need a blow-by-blow description. They know exactly what that means. They, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right side and the other on his left. And I'm thankful for that detail. Jesus said, Father, and this is part of the poignancy of the cross. He starts out with Father. But by the end, he's just going to say, my God, my God, it's not Father anymore. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he says, Father, forgive them, 
for they don't know what they're doing. That's Psalm 109.4. And every time I read that, I want to look at Jesus and say, saying, what is wrong with you? They know exactly what they're doing. Always kind of makes me mad. <laughs> but what is this? This is Hesed. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. He's forgiving the people who are doing this to, 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 to them. And he's told his disciples already, this is what it looks like. You know, we love our enemies. Uh, and that is non-negotiable. Uh, and they divided, his, uh, they divided up his clothes by casting lot. That's Psalm 22. <laughs> um, the people stood watching. And, we, you know, we, 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 know, we know from the, uh, the, the dice game how many soldiers there were in the detachment that crucified him. I think there's three, right? Is that what it ends up being? That's John. That's the Gospel of John. Luke doesn't give us that detail. <clears throat> they, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered. That's Psalm 109.25. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Yeah, that's Psalm 22.8. The soldiers all co also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. Now, what is wine vinegar? It's just wine that's gone bad. That's all it is. And they were given wine vinegar when they were on post, kind of like coffee. They would drink it to stay awake. I mean, drink a cup of vinegar someday and see what, <laughs> see what it does to you. It'll wake you right up. That's, that's what they do. Um, let me see. I've got a quote from the Sanhedrin here, uh, from the Tal Talmud. Sanhedrin 43a says, this, oh, oh, hold on. No, 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 no. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry about that. Um, don't worry about that. Um, yeah, the soldiers came in. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. Uh, in, in Matthew, he asked for a drink. And they, they take a sponge and they put it on a stalk and they, they soak it with this vinegar and they put it up, they put it up to him, which indicates he's, it's high. He's on a high cross. There's some crosses where your feet are almost touching the ground and there's some crosses that are very high. And, and um, Cicero says... And Josephus also says that the, the Romans crucified people all different ways. You know, we used to argue about that in the Jesus movement, that it was, you know, he had, had to be this way, and, it, and, and this was how he was crucified. Uh, uh, um, Cicero says he even saw people crucified upside down. They would make their deaths farcical by nailing them up in, in different positions. So, you know, all those things we used to argue about, it was a big waste of time. <laughs> big waste of time. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we asked for a drink and I'll, and I'll just say this as a, as a sidebar, the only thing, the only use of a sponge that we know of in, in, uh, Roman culture is like toilet paper. I mean, I'll, that's what they use sponges for. Uh, there was a written notice above him and this was typical, um, which read, this is the king of the Jews. All of the gospels quote that slightly differently. The one phrase that they all have in common is king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there uh, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our sins deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the guy being crucified with him says he's innocent. Everybody's saying he's innocent. 
You know, the, the, the focus on Jesus' innocence, I think, is, is amazing. Boy, we're running out of time quick, aren't we? Um, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is the oldest word that we know anything about. Paradisi. It's the, it's the, it's the oldest word that has retained its original form all the way back to cuneiform. P-R-D-S. When it's written in ancient languages, P-R-D-S. So it's this ancient, ancient word. Back to, you know, the very beginnings of language. Um, uh, it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, where's my note? Because someone was asking me about that. Um, well, anyway, the way you, you, way you reckon time, there's two ways to reckon time. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just the six hours, six o'clock. But sometimes the, the Roman way is uh, the morning is one, right? And so six, so I mean, I'm sorry, morning, like six o'clock in the morning, that's one, right? And so six, six, the sixth hour would be noon. And that's how I think most people reckon this. So it's noon. The six hours noon. I wish I had all my notes. I had this worked out for my dyslexic mind here someplace, but I don't have that here because someone was asking me. Anyway, the six hours, so that's noon. And uh, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be three. And uh, Matthew tells us of earthquakes, uh, of, of the graves of other people opening, and people, I mean, there's this cataclysm that happens. Uh, is it Amos? Yeah, Amos uh, 8, 9, I think is the best cross-reference. It talks about the darkness that signifies God mourning the death of his only son, or, or the, the mourning the death of an only son. That's uh, Amos 8, uh, 9. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Um, there's two curtains, so we don't know which one. You need to know, though, this, this curtain, it's not like one of those curtains. It's the, the, the Talmud says it's a handbreadth thick. Think of a piece of cloth that's this thick, and it's torn from the top to the bottom. And the two, there are two choices. There's a, there's a curtain in front of the Holy of Holies, which means that only the priest would have seen it if it was ripped. But then there's the curtain outside that everybody could see. And my guess is it's probably that one. And the symbol is, you know, obviously the way now to God is open um, to everyone. There's an odd uh, statement in the Talmud that uh, it's, some people think it's related that um, at one point around this time, one of the doors of the temple opened all by itself. So who knows if that's the same thing. But it's torn into. <coughs> Jesus calls out in a loud voice, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So that's Isaiah 53. And my note says the most accurate description of the crucifixion is in, is in uh, the Old Testament. I already said that, didn't I? Uh, the centurion, seeing uh, what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And that's a statement of Jesus' innocence. So even the Roman who's crucifying him says he's innocent. Uh, and do you know that odd little of statement in John 19.35? When John talks about this, let me read it to you because uh, I think the, 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 there's a tradition anyway that says this 
And I think it's, uh, I love it. I really hope it's true. It's a parenthesis, and John is full of parentheses, but this is 1935, right at the same time after Jesus' side is pierced. He who saw this has testified so that you may believe. Uh, his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. Isn't that weird? It's a weird little, almost like, a, not a PS, but a little, almost like a marginal quote uh, but the idea being that this, this Roman centurion becomes a part of the church. He, com- he becomes part of the testimony. He pierces Jesus' side. He sees water and blood coming out. And, uh, and there's that odd little statement in John. The one who saw this, is tr- he knows that his testimony is true. It's weird. I think he was part of John's church. So the Roman centurion says, uh, surely uh, this was... Um, a righteous man. I've lost my place. There we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when all the people who gathered to witness this saw uh, they, what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. Uh, but all those who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The women are the witnesses. They see him die. They see him taken down from the cross. They see him put into the tomb. And they're the first ones that see the empty tomb. So the women are the witnesses. Okay? okay we're almost out of time. I'm going to jump ahead to the resurrection. And watch how fast I can read. Yeah. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, uh, I just, I've got to take time to say this. Do you know how in Judaism, you know how it's morning? You have a blue thread and a black thread. And the moment that it's light enough that you can tell the difference between blue and black, it's morning. That's how you do it. So right around that time, you can barely see a, you know, the, the, the horizon. You know, there's just enough light to kind of see what's going on. Um, early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, why are they going to the tomb? Are they going to sit outside and see if... The stone rolls back and he's raised from the dead like he said. No, they're going to anoint a dead body. There is, this is the most important thing I can say about the resurrection of Jesus. There is zero expectation. Nobody, for 10 chapters, he told them he was going to be crucified and raised from the dead. And absolutely nobody got it. Even the women. And in Luke, the women are the ones who get it, right? 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 They are going to the tomb to anoint a dead body. When they see the stone's been rolled away, what do they say? The body's been stolen. No one says, oh, he's been raised from the dead. Remember? No. Zero expectations. So they got spices. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, it's, it's John who asks, I think, they think uh, someone's stolen the body. In fact, Mary thinks they've stolen the body. When they entered, they did not find the, the body of the Lord. The, an empty tomb is evidence. It's not proof. On, the only proof is, is the living Jesus. Okay? The only proof is the living Jesus. So they look. There's nothing there. While they are wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleam like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, uh, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Angelic questions always indicate the person they're talking to has no idea what's really going on. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up at the sky? It's kind of like, don't you guys get it? You know, Why are you looking for the dead among the living? Okay. 
he's not here, and then, and then, then on they go. Um, um, they, uh, let me just, let me synop, you know, kind of ca- uh, tap, uh, overview it for you, and then so we can get to the end. Uh, basically, they run to the disciples and tell them what has happened, and there in verse um, 20, uh, verse 11, it seemed to them like nonsense. That is the technical medical term for delirium. And Luke's, as, as Luke, you know, diagnoses the women's problem, or the, as Luke's, as Luke thinks that the disciples diagnose their problem, they're delirious. They're delirious, right? Uh, nonsense. But Peter gets up and runs to the tomb, and John gives us great detail. Peter and John run to the tomb, and John wants you to know he got there first. He outran Peter. John writes this when he's 90 years old. He hasn't outrun anybody in a long time, and he's, he's very proud of this. Okay, He's very proud of this. So they run to the tomb. Stooping down, they saw the strips of linen lining by themselves, and they went away, Peter went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So Peter doesn't get it. Peter, who, I mean, over and over and over, Jesus has said this. Peter sees the empty tomb. He goes, I wonder what happened. The, the, the persistence of disbelief is, is, uh, is unbelievable from one point of view. From my, from my grief counselor's point of view, how did anybody get it? Your whole life's just falling apart, right? And you, now the tomb's empty, you know. Now let, let's, let's do Emmaus. I got five minutes. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village uh, called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. That's really hard to translate because it's perfect. Uh, it's, it's imperfect. Uh, my note says this is a beautiful u- use of the imperfect tense. Jesus was already walking with them. Uh, but So he's already walking with them, and they, then they notice he's with them. That's sort of the, the implication, at least from, we'll ask our, our Greek scholar afterward to, to but some, I read this in some commentary, and it sounds like a cool idea. So, um, so the, as they're walking along, Jesus himself is walking along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. No one recognizes him. Um, Mary thinks he's the gardener. She recognizes his voice. Uh, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus walk and talk with him for hours and don't know who he is. They recognize him when he breaks the bread. The disciples in the second miraculous catch of fish don't know who it is. They recognize the miracle of the second miraculous catch of fish. They're standing on the, uh, on the shore by the fire with Jesus. And John says, and none of them dared ask, who are you? Isn't that an odd thing to say? And then Matthew at the ascension and, uh, and there were some among them who didn't believe. The persistence of unbelief is unbelievable. <laughs> That'd be a good song. Um, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas uh, asked him, are you the only one living in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened uh, there in these days? And it's a little bit humorous or, you know, you kind of smile when you read this. <laughs> What things, he asked, <laughs> about Jesus of Nazareth. He was, was a prophet. 
powerful in word and deed before God and all the people and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We had hoped. We had hoped. But it is over. You, you don't get the resurrection until you realize it is over. I have I've lost it. I've gambled everything and I've lost everything. I've left my home. I've left my family. It's, it's over. And they've killed this guy. You don't get it until you, you, that, that joy that Jesus says no one will take from us. You don't get it until you kind of start from zero. <laughs> you know, it's not I've got this expectation. Mm, let's see if it's really going to happen. No, it, it, there's no way it can happen. You know, it's over. It's over. We had hoped. Uh, what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us, and then they tell that story. Um, and then Jesus says, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart that you did not believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them everything that was said in him in the scriptures concerning himself. Would you not have loved to heard that? Everything in the scriptures concerning himself, and they still don't know it's him. Y'all, come on. They still don't know it's him. As they approached the village to, to, to which they were going, Jesus asked, acts as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly. This sounds Shakespearean to me. Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When, they, uh, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open. So he breaks the bread, and then their eyes were open. And just let me, I mean, we're almost out of time, but I'm going to squeak this right down to the last second. The way they recognize Jesus is the same way we recognize Jesus. We are post-resurrection people. They are the first post-resurrection people. Okay, They recognize Jesus when he does what? Breaks the bread. We recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, right? We break the bread and we recognize he is with us. Okay, uh, Mary recognizes his voice. That's how we recognize him. We're post-resurrection people just like Mary. My sheep hear my voice. See, and one of the reasons we're here is we're learning to recognize the, jo the voice of Jesus. And finally, how do the, in John 21, how do they recognize Jesus? He does a miracle. They don't recognize him. They recognize a, the, the net full of fish. And it's the same in our lives. That's why it's so important that we understand and be able to recognize the miracles that he's doing. A miraculous as they may seem. See? And if you're a preacher, that, by the way, that preaches itself. If you want to just take that preaches itself so let's uh, very last appearance in 36 i may go like a minute and a half over time is that okay okay huh it's okay what i was supposed to go to 1210 why did you you once you throw something at me i'm up here killing myself okay okay i'm gonna slow back down again i thought i had to stop at 1210 okay well Verse 33. <laughs> they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. I mean, what, what do you, th I mean, what kind of pace? Seven miles. You know, how, how long did that take? They're sprinting the whole way. There they found the 11. It's kind of eerie, isn't it? The 11. And those with him assembled together and saying, It's true. The Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. The very first resurrection of Jesus is to Simon, and we have no account of it. 
Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared first to Peter. So there is, a, there is a, 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 an appearance to Peter that we have reference to, but we don't have an account of. And wouldn't you love to have known what that was all about? But when you're looking at John 21 and Jesus, uh, Peter diving in and swimming to Jesus on the shore, you've got to realize they've dealt with the denials. I mean, that had to be what the first appearance had to be about. I mean, I'm guessing. But you know what? When Peter wraps his coat around him and dives in the water, he's not reluctant to get to Jesus, this person he's denied. I call him, he's the Labrador, uh, Labrador retriever of disciples. He can't get to Jesus fast enough. They've dealt with the denials. They've dealt with the denials, I think. I think that explains a lot of things. But the first resurrection appearance was to Peter. And we don't have an account of it. I think it was just too personal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he says, I just think it was just too personal. Yeah. Yeah, but, my, but they had to have dealt with the denials. You know, Peter's got to say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and maybe it's tied to Jesus praying for him. Who, who knows? But that, that is a big piece of the puzzle that I don't hear very many people talk about. Yeah. So he didn't appear to Mary in the garden? No, he does. No, he does. Well, Paul, Paul says he appeared first to Peter. No, 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 no. I don't think so. Yeah. No, I, I know. I know he appears to them, Mary, Mary. But um, did he tell the ladies to go and tell the disciples and tell Peter? Yeah. He actually specifically mentioned Yeah, and that must have been before he appears to him, right? Well. Maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't the first, maybe, it's the, maybe it's the first appearance to the disciples. Yeah, let's do it that way. I think you're right. The first appearance to the disciples. But he appeared first to Peter is what Paul says. Oh, and you're saying, oh, he's discounting the, the, the appearance to the woman. Okay, that's a safe assumption. <clears throat> <clears throat> While they were still talking about, oh, I already did that. Where am I? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're back to the disciples. I'm sorry. The 11. It's true, the Lord, and he's appeared to Peter. Okay. Uh, then the two told what had happened to them and how they had recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. See, even they say, yeah, our eyes were open when, when, when uh, he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself uh, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And you, that's ordinary. That's high. Shalom. That's in, in, in fact, if you learn modern Hebrew, shalom doesn't mean peace. It means hello. Now, do with that what you want to. My, my, my thing is the ordinariness of it is, is striking. Peace. Hi. Hey, guys. Yeah, let's do it that way. Hey, guys. Shalom. Peace. Um, they were startled and frightened. Who's that sound like? <laughs> thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's I myself. And that's another important, uh, when Jesus does appear to people, uh, how is he recognized? Does he say, remember, remember brown eyes? Remember this freckle? It's me. No, he says, 
It's me. He is the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world. He is always recognized by his woundedness. When uh, Zechariah has a vision of the risen Lord, the first thing he says is, where did you get those wounds? That's Zechariah. And the response of Jesus is, this is where I was wounded for my friends. Go to the other end of history, uh, the book of Revelation. John is weeping because there's this scroll and they can't open it. There's too many seals on it. And um, one of the elders, it sounds like one of the elders from my church, the elders jabs him and says, stop crying. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John looks up expecting to see a lion. What does he see? A lamb. How does he know who that lamb is? He's wounded. See, that's my whole known by the scars thing. Jesus is recognized by his wounds. There are these, I call this marks of love that God chose never to erase. In this otherwise perfect resurrection body, he still has scars. Yeah, he still has scars. And Bill Lane would say, and we as his followers should be recognized by our scars. Not by our PhDs, but by the scars that we have incurred from faithfully following Jesus. We should be known by our scars. Okay? It preaches itself, preachers. Preaches itself. Um, so why do you doubt? Look at my hands. It's me. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. It is a bodily retor- resurrection. It's a bodily, and he's going to prove it now by eating something. <laughs> I love this. Um, when he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, not just amazement, not just joy, but joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here for me to eat? So he goes, watch this, y'all. I'm going to eat a piece of fish. Body, your body matters. Your body matters. And God is going to raise us. He's going to raise our bodies. And, uh, and they're going to be perfect. Our ears won't ring, you know. We won't fall asleep <laughs> when we don't want to, you know. We won't, uh, won't have cancers. We won't lose babies. It's going to be glorious. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it in their presence. Now watch this. You know, watch this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There, there's, by the way, not a Jewish canon yet. There's not law of prophets writings yet. Um, then He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. We know at one point he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, sort of preliminary uh, granting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day... um, and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It's like an extension of what he's been telling them for months. He's been telling this for months. You are, my, or you are the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you... Um, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised... But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. That's Pentecost. And one of the things that's so difficult about recovering a 
post-resurrection chronology is in the other gospels, the very first thing that the angels tell the women, tell the disciples, go back to Galilee. I'm going to meet you back in Galilee. So apparently the, first, the very first thing they do is they go back to Galilee. And that's where the second miraculous catch of fish happens in John 21. That's where the Great Commission happens. That's in Matthew. In, that's in Galilee. The, the Great Commission is not the same thing as the Ascension. That's two different, two different times. So believe me, this post, post-resurrection chronology is, is, a, is a tough one. So um, apparently they go back to Galilee, then they come back and they wait for Pentecost, for the, for the Spirit. Um, you are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, of which John talks a lot about, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Mount of Olives, there's a big tower there that commemorates the ascension. He lifted up his hands and... Bless them. Baruch atah, blessing. That's what you do. You bless people. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So there it is. This is my prayer for you. Verse 45. When Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scripture. That's what I'm asking for, for all of us. That the Lord, I mean, we, we believe, we're pointing ahead to fundamentalists, right? We believe that the Holy Spirit is in us. We believe that the Holy Spirit wants us to know Jesus. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is here to speak to us and reveal. He won't talk about himself, Jesus said. He's gonna talk about me. So my prayer for all of us is that, is that, um, the Holy Spirit will, will continue to open our eyes so that we can understand the scripture. And let, let, me, uh, let me bless you. Yivareka ka Adonai v'nish mareka. Ya'er Adonai panavaleka v'huneka. Ya'ser Adonai panavaleka v'asem laka shalom. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you his peace.